For the week of April 20th, 2016, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Today, a conversation with a female pioneer in the solar industry. We'll talk about the early days of solar, how to close the gender gap in science and technology, and discuss the future of solar manufacturing. After that, we move on to a wide-ranging national energy bill that rose back from the dead and was passed by the Senate yesterday. And we end with the legacy of Roan Resch, who's retiring as president of the Solar Industries National Trade Group after 12 years. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome to the show. Catherine Hamilton is with me in Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. How are you? I'm great. And I got to bump into Jigger yesterday in New York City. It was wonderful. Jigger? Was it as wonderful for you? Oh, always. Although, <laughs> although Catherine actually, like, you know, was paid the respect of actually having a badge waiting for her at the, the conference. And uh, I had to sneak in in the end because uh, they couldn't get their stuff together. They didn't recognize the puffy vest? They did not recognize the puffy vest. <laughs> I didn't think riff either of you even needed badges. <laughs> Unacceptable. So a final reminder to listeners, we're all going to bump into each other on the week of the 4th. We've sold a bunch of tickets to our live show in New York City on May 4th at the WNYC Performance Space. We've got a handful left. This is the last reminder you're going to get. We are off next week. The next time you'll hear from us, we'll be at that live sh- show. So go to cleanenyc.org slash next dash event. I know that's a mouthful. You can just follow the link from our website at Green Tech Media. If you're on your phone right now listening, you can see the link right there in the show notes. Click it, secure your spot. I'm looking forward to seeing many of you there. Those shows are so much fun. Let's get started. Our guest this week is a 37-year veteran of the solar industry. Terry Jester is the CEO of Silicor Materials, a company that plans to cut the cost of producing silicon for solar by half. Terry started her career as the VP of Engineering at Arco Solar, a company that eventually became Shell Solar, which eventually became Solar World. We're going to talk to her today about the different stages of the solar industry and how we can continue improving costs. Terry, welcome. How are you? Oh, great. And thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this. It's uh, one of my favorite favorite energy shows. Thank you. So you've been in solar since the, the heady days of the late 70s, early 80s, when oil companies were really driving solar manufacturing. So your former company, Arco, the Atlantic Richfield Company, bought up a small company in 1977 and became the first company to manufacture a megawatt of solar in a year. Big milestone. At that time, ExxonMobil, BP, Mobile Oil, all made acquisitions to get into solar. What can you tell us about the way solar was viewed by oil companies in those days? When I joined, uh, I'm a mechanical engineer by degree, by the way, and I was uh, in school, so I worked part-time for Arco Solar before I graduated and then went to work for them full-time. But at, at that uh, point in time, they were they had a lot of cash. Well, oil companies generally have had that, right? Um, but they had divested uh, or invested in several types of technologies, uh, and, and, the, and the biggest one was this solar venture that they had uh, invested in in Los Angeles. Um, I would say at that time, they were very generous. Uh, they were financing uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, R&D, but also a lot of initial work on how to make solar cells. Uh, I was just telling somebody the other day that I remember, so I worked for Bill Yerkes, and um, 
he literally to start printing solar cells or look at how to put contacts on in an inexpensive way, went down the street in LA and got a t-shirt printing machine, which we used to to start putting front and back contacts on cells. Um, so in working for the oil companies, we had a tremendous amount of freedom to uh, to have money to do things. You know, I, I jokingly say I traded working my first 28 years for large companies with large balance sheets for startups with uh, just the opposite, right? Where you're sort of scratching and, and working to get those, uh, that money on your balance sheet, right? Um, so it was a, it was a really a great time. And I, and a lot of people questioned their intent and their earnestness in being involved, but I can tell you candidly, uh, they were very generous with capital and very uh, attentive. I, I remember in very early days, when I was just, you know, first, second year engineer out of school, uh, giving presentations to the board of directors at Atlantic Richfield on things we were doing. So there was attention right from the top. And I think, I think an understanding of what this thing could be. Um, I think that it's difficult when, when companies like that uh, have difficult times. So then, you know, we went into a period of, of, of oil shortages and, and difficulties with uh, capital and, and, you know, they don't, they had a tough time sticking with it, I think, during some of the difficult times. You got to give BP a lot of credit for sticking with it for many, many years, right? I mean, I think those are things that are testaments to some of the kind of creative thinking that the oil companies do. Um, but in the end, they are oil companies. And so when the going gets tough, I think it's difficult for them to to sort of stick it out in some of these new ventures, if you will. Yeah, Jigger, you were at BP Solar. Did you have the same experience? Yeah. You know, I think that... Um the thing about BP, I remember when I was there, is they had this huge knowledge management initiative where they were trying to get all the employees in the companies to put their best uh, sort of skills onto a platform so you could find each other. And, you know, and and so through that, I was able to meet, you know, I don't know, 500, 1,000 you know, employees within BP. And uniformly, we had support from people who were working in Prudhoe Bay in Alaska. We had support from people, the you know, drillers working in Azerbaijan. Um, there was really broad-based support within BP for BP Solar while I was there. Hey, Terry, so what were you, you were VP of engineering back then when you started out with, with ARCO. What were the big improvements you were working on in the late 70s and early 80s? It's funny, I still have in, in my kind of files in my garage a, a memo I had written. Uh, I got to work very early on on uh, putting EVA in modules. When I first started, we weren't using EVA. So, um one of my favorite things that I got to work on at the beginning was uh, sort of triangulating between the reliability work going on at JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Lab, um, and uh, adapting some of the knowledge of reliability from space uh, types of modules to terrestrial modules, you know, which, of course, cost and reliability were the two key items there. Cost, of course, being the kind of new entry when you're looking at how to adapt things from space to, to terrestrial. So um, that was that was really, really a great project that I got to work on and got to, you know, sort of tie off the reliability testing and module design that, you know, again, in large part is, is still used today. I think uh, an, another great thing that the, that the oil companies did is, I think, is worry at the beginning about reliability. I, I remember there was a stint when Siemens owned our company for 10 years. And I remember when we went from 10 years to 25-year uh, warranties. And uh, the head of the company at that time was uh, Mr. Gernot Oswald. And he, we had all of our you know technical data out on the tables. And we're going through all of the various bathtub curves and reliability statistics and he finally said, this all looks good. But, you know, in the end, Siemens has a balance sheet that can support this decision. We're going to go to 25 years. The technology uh, and technical 
uh, data looks good, but in the end, there's some risk with this. And I'll, I'll never forget. I thought, wow, that's a huge decision, you know, and, and only companies like that at the beginning, I think, could have made those kinds of decisions, the BPs and the uh, Shells, Arco, Siemens, you know, they had enough financial backing that that had some meaning, right? So uh, I remember thinking at that meeting, wow, I hope we're all right. You know, I hope we all, all this data <laughs> really holds because, as you know now, modules are not even a question about the reliability. And, you know, in those early days when we were installing in PVUSA and, you know, in the various, you know, Lugo and all those things at the very beginning out in the desert, um, you know, there was some risk associated with it. We had a lot of data, uh, predictable data and lifetime testing data, but in the end, there's nothing that substitutes for what actually happens. And uh, the passage of time, I think, has been a testament to that early work. Terry, I have a question. Since you started, you know, fairly long time ago, I was also in in a utility back, you know, in the early days. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, just wondering how you were able to do this as a woman engineer. Did they just take you as an engineer, and there was no there were no questions asked? I mean, I know a lot of the things that I encountered early on. Um, are now considered illegal. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But I mean, I'm just wondering how, you know, you were really a groundbreaking, not just for, for being in the solar industry, but being a woman in the solar industry. And I would just love to hear kind of your perspective of what those companies were like. Well, it's a, it's a really good question. It's funny, to, to, to first order, because the solar business was so new and so, um, you know, it was just sort of open territory, if you will, I think everybody that was involved in it was pretty much, wow, we're we're really uh, doing something different here. And I think there was a, a time that uh, there just wasn't a lot of rules. And I'm talking about, you know, how to do things, not necessarily um, on the people side of it. But uh, I think there was just sort of an earnest kind of roll up your sleeves, 80 hour a week, kind of a, you know, just kind of keep, keep working here attitude. Um, I grew up with five brothers, so I had a lot of, <laughs> there was no mystery for me about how, you know, working with a tremendous amount of men was going to be. Um, and, uh, but I do think being in a very new field afforded me a lot of freedom that maybe uh, isn't as as prevalent in, in some of the more established fields. Um, I, and maybe I just chose to ignore it, you know, that might be part of it too, is um, I think that uh, I, gosh, you know, without sounding like it was a struggle, because to be honest with you, it wasn't particularly in those early days because we were all just working so hard. Um, uh, it was a kind of a nice combination of getting to do very groundbreaking work in an, uh, under an umbrella of an established uh, set of companies or company rules, if you will. So um, particularly at Atlantic Richfield, it was one of the classiest organizations I've ever worked for. And Jigger, I don't know how you felt about BP, and I don't know that company's culture as well. No, the but, same. Um, I mean, just classy. the smartest people that you've ever worked with who are the most dedicated. And, you know, and it's just, it's one of those weird things where, um, you know, I was, growing up, I was a big Chicago Cubs fan. And I remember um, that there was this, like, Cubs curse where as soon as, somebody left the Cubs, they became really successful. <laughs> and I, I felt the same that. thing about like BP. It was like, we had these extraordinary people, but it was like, as soon as they left to start something else and went to another company, like the shackles were off. And it, it wasn't that BP, like uh, corporate strangled BP solar, quite the contrary. It was just that like that at their core, they weren't 
able to perceive solar as being anything but a really interesting experiment. One that got all the resources that it could ever want, but uh-huh. still like an interesting experiment that you couldn't actually get someone to say this is going to be a major energy source. I think that's a good point because, you know, despite I, I was always amazed that they had a 50 year sort of outlook on business. You know, they'd been in business you know, a lot of the oil companies and Siemens had been in business 150 years. And, you know, they always said they want to be in business another 150 years at least. So they had long term looks at the way businesses would evolve. And, of course, these curves of what kind of energy portfolio the world would be using. But I agree with Jigger. There was always a novelty part of it with solar that was, um, gosh, we, we, we know there's potential here, but, you know, we don't know how this is all going to play out. And, and I think in the end, um, a, a certain sort of, uh, as I mentioned, the, the risk that somebody like Siemens was willing to take to put a, a long-term reliability stamp on modules, uh, a willingness to do things that maybe money could buy, if you will, but maybe uh, less sort of how to get it done. I used to say here when we worked for Shell, hear people say, well, they buy small companies and then they end up selling them because they just don't know what to do with small companies. You know, it's, (laughs) it's, and I, I, you know, I, that kind of stuck with me as, as, as we went along. And although Shell was a great owner too, and super classy company. Um, And I don't know if I've really answered Catherine's question about being a woman in those early days. I think in the end, it just didn't matter because we were all working on a common goal that everybody believed in so strongly. It was a bit altruistic, you know, maybe it took that at the beginning, but the belief of it being a, a you know a long-term portion of the energy solution for the world, and you know a, a strong sort of belief technically and altruistically, and so um, it was a re- really great period of time. I, I don't know, Jigger. I assume you share that kind of an opinion in those oh, early days where it was. I uh, I, I mean, I I started working in the solar industry in 1995 for Astro Power. Um, oh, which I love. <laughs> the same thing. I mean, Alan Barnett obviously is one of the legends in the industry. Absolutely. And, um, you know, probably trained some of the best and brightest PhD students out of the University of Delaware. And Astro Power um, was acquired by GE, right? Right. right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I, one of the things I am curious about, Terry, is I am such a curmudgeon about technology. <laughs> and, um, and I know that you're obviously working on this great company, but I just, I wonder sometimes, when I look at a solar panel today, everything about it is better than it was in 1999 when I was at yeah. BP, but yeah. it's all the same. It yeah, literally kinda... is the same sandwich. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's just every process is that much better than it was back then. I agree. It's been evolutionary rather than revolutionary, I think, in certain cases, because uh, I, I like to say we're a little bit of a victim of our own success. So the modules are very reliable and the cells keep getting better. But to be able to change it now that it's such a big business and the bankability question and and all of the you know issues of how can you prove you know the various longevity or uh, you know, benefits is, is it, it pigeonholes us a little bit. And the fact that, that the module designs have been so successful. But, it, uh, but do you, do you yeah. think it's pigeonholing or do you think it really is just better? Like when you look at Dick Swanson's work, for instance, you mm-hmm. know, the, the back contact cell basically went two different directions. One direction yep. went to sun power and the other direction went to Aminix. But, yep. you know, I don't know that concentrating solar and that kind of active heat management ever makes sense. I mean, like it works in space because, of the temperature in space. Yeah, but, yeah, right. But when you think about, like, you know, on terrestrial applications, it always looks good until you're like, uh, crap, the maintenance costs are just <laughs> overwhelming. Well, and I think, as you said, that that the evolutionary stuff from this 
great work that these folks did where it, the sales continue to get better and, you know, modules end up getting cheaper, et cetera, because things are done better or in a much more uh, efficient manner. I'm more concerned about the other side of it, right? So when, The other way, okay. Well, when these new guys come, you know, into our industry and say, well, Jigger, you know, we got to be at 25 cents a watt for solar and we're going to do, you know, like Martin Green's new stuff and we're going to do mm-hmm. this and we're going to do that. And, you know, when Applied Materials said, oh, we're going to make, you know, amorphous silicon in a box. And I just laughed because I remember mm-hmm. what the amorphous silicon days were like at BP Solar. And it's just amazing to me how many people in this industry are so new that they can't even be bothered to pick up John Perlin's <laughs> book on the history of solar. Yeah, I always call it the time zero effect. You know, like nothing yeah. started until this particular thing uh, happened. Or, um, I always just like to say, too, though, good ideas always stand. So, right. uh, you know, certain things don't die because I do think they're good ideas. Maybe they haven't been fully commercialized yet. But um, I applaud the creativity, but I know the bar is very high for people to get into this industry now because it's so big, right? Um, and I think that uh, new technologies, as you're mentioning, it's 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 difficult. I mean, I don't, it's one of the things that we have faced at Silicor. You know, uh, we're really trying to break this methodology or, or enter a methodology space that has been la- done largely the same way for 50 years, even longer than the solar business has been around. Yeah, let's let's and, talk uh, about that. So, so Silicor is developing solar grade silicon, which is different from electronic grade silicon. It allows you to cut out some steps in the production process. And you have a great quote here that I read. You said that uh, using electronic grade silicon as the keystone for solar is akin to using a sports car to deliver mail. It gets the job done, but it probably isn't the best use of resources. So you've been working on this for a while now. The company started out as Cali Solar and was uh, making solar cells. Then it got into silicon production itself. And you started focusing on solar-grade silicon. How does the process work, and why is it different from electronic-grade silicon? And we have a lot of folks who are not in solar manufacturing or who are not necessarily technical. <laughs> I'll so, be careful not to get yeah. too, too crazy. <laughs> um, let me just tell you why I, I, I'm in this space, because I personally have been in the downstream more of my career. I know that in uh, looking at the value chain of making modules, silicon is is really the last place where there's any opportunity to reduce costs significantly. Um, and by that, I mean changing the cost of the material. So uh, in at Cali Solar, which uh, eventually we acquired a company called 6N Silicon out of Toronto, and quickly realized as we merged those two companies that uh, the real benefit here is to, is to create the silicon in such a way that it's tailored to make solar cells. So for instance, uh, Silicor, and we rebranded the company as Silicor because it was making silicon and and neither of those companies actually names really accurately reflected what we were doing. Um, Silicor's material is the same quality as electronic grades in all the transition metals. What's different about Silicor material uh, is in the way that we make it, we, we smelt aluminum and silicon together. So the aluminum has an affinity for the impurities in the silicon. We all start with metallurgical grade silicon, uh, but the electronic grade producers, as well as um, all of the alternative silicon producers to first order, starts with metallurgical grade silicon. Metallurgical grade silicon has a bunch of impurities in it. What you want to do is get those impurities out. The way uh, the electronic grade guys do it, our, we like to tell our investors, and our investors coin this they take the electronic or the metallurgical grade silicon, which is kind of looks like a rock. Uh, they break it down, digest it in acid, turn it into a gas, and 
and then re-solidify it. We skip all of that transitionary uh, phase change, if you will, from rock to gas to rock, and we smelt aluminum and a, a silicon together, clean up the silicon, the impurities go into the aluminum, along with a little bit of silicon, by the way, and that's important in just a minute, I'll tell you why. Um, and the clean silicon is, is then further refined to uh, make solar cells. The reason I mentioned the aluminum is we like to say in this process we rent the aluminum. And in fact, the process was invented by a guy in the aluminum business who uh, was making car wheels, cast car wheels, where you want the strength of a little bit of silicon and aluminum. Um, and he thought, if I just switch this process over a little bit in temperature and time, I can harvest the silicon rather than the aluminum. Um, and that's really where this this particular process was founded. Um, so that being said, what we do is we use this aluminum as a cleaning media, if you will. It goes right back to the aluminum partner that we work with. Uh, they look at us a little bit as a cost avoidance process also, since they make the product. It's called Master Alloy Strengthened Aluminum. Um, so we represent to them sort of a capital avoidance and cost avoidance step. So the solar grade silicon, uh, or the silicon, if you will, has all the properties when you make it into a solar cell as 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 the traditional means of making it. So Terry, I guess I'm curious that like, you know, we've gone through a lot of, you know, sort of stages here with, you know, Astro Power and them, you know, trying to grow solar grade silicon and then the partnerships between, you know, Astro Power and Alcom and all this other stuff. I mean, at, at at some fundamental level, why are you still convinced that solar grade silicon is should is a category or should be a category? It's a really good question, you know, because uh, certainly again, my my I've made myself probably a gigawatt worth of solar cells and modules. So that's really where my career has been. Um, and the answer is simple. I think the rest of the value chain has been wrung out at this point, and it's one of the last opportunities to make a change that can meaningfully uh, bring down, continue to bring down the cost of solar. And I believe this particular process has so much merit in that it's super simple and super scalable. If you can imagine, our plant in Iceland is going to be about a million square feet, and it's a very long, narrow plant, and it consists of about three three sections, if you will. There's furnaces and molds, There, and what happens there is we smelt the aluminum and silicon together. Uh, you start letting the uh, mixture, the eutectic mixture, they call it, cool down. It creates almost like ice crystals in in a glass of water, you decant off the molten aluminum, the water in the, in the analogy I just gave, and you're left with these very clean uh, flakes of silicon that are in, in, on the order of a size of a piece of paper, if you will. Um, those, it looks like mica, you know, at that point in our process. You strip off the aluminum uh, with a dilute uh, hydrochloric acid. That also makes a product that is commercially traded called polyaluminum chloride. And the partners we work with there also look at us as a cost avoidance uh, opportunity for them. They take the pack, they filter it a bit, and then they sell it for a profit. So uh, these co-products are both things that we don't have to create markets for. And in fact, we're a drop in the bucket in, in these cases because they're such well-established markets. It will be a revolutionary thing, but it will not revolutionize the industry in the first step. Terry, it seems that you know, you're building this plant in Iceland, which you're using resources, uh, geothermal resources and mm -hmm. hydro resources that are in Iceland. The 
the manufacturing process is less hazardous, it's energy efficient. It just seems that the whole manufacturing process that you are coming up with, not only are you producing a product that is going to increase efficiency and lower costs, but the whole manufacturing element to that will also be have less of an environmental footprint. Is that correct? Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up, Catherine, because that's, again, another reason that I particularly am involved in this company, because I could see pretty early on that this process uh, could be made with with a very uh, clean manufacturing plant. So for the first time in my career, you know, and I've spent it all in the solar business, you can draw a black box around this thing and there's no waste what comes in, there's four materials that come in, aluminum, silicon, hydrochloric acid, and water. And what goes out is solar-grade silicon, master alloy, which is aluminum with a little bit of silicon in it, and polyaluminum chloride, which is a hydrochloric aluminum uh, mixture that's used for treating water. And again, we didn't create those markets. Those exist, and we just happen to be a small player, really, really in all three, frankly, right? And um, I believe, at least from my experience, it's a good way to start. Okay, so so last question. Think back to the solar industry 35 years ago. Do you think we'll look back on the solar industry 35 years from now and feel the same way? You know, it seems so quaint. You guys were using oh, T-shirt printing machines. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is the equipment that we're using today going to be the equivalent of that? Or have we sort of hit a different phase and this is what we're looking at? Well, and I'd love to hear uh, your guys' opinion about this. It's funny because I think the industry has swung uh, several di- different directions, maybe uh, in 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 we're going to do everything from uh, you know making silicon to installed systems and PPAs to very segmented. And I'd say right now we're kind of in between. Um, I think on the front end, uh, because I at least in this case in this particular process see. You know, we could we could hook a metallurgical grade silicon process to the front end of this, where we'd be bringing quartz wood chips. Uh, coal into. By the way, I should mention that coal is used in all making of silicon. So, uh, I've I've felt strongly the coal industry ought to step into the silicon industry. Um, I think it would help their image quite a bit <laughs> um, because we all use it. Nobody likes to talk about it, but we all use it. Um, but uh, I think in the particular case of of silicon, I think upstream uh, optimization with its own raw material will continue to happen. I'd love to hear your guys' opinion about the midstream and the downstream, if you think that's all going to kind of come together. You know, there's these companies that are, are doing that to first order, but I don't know that it's going to be the model in the long run. Well, for a long time, you know, I've always thought that the vertical integration within the industry was a bad thing. I mean, I think people who are good at making silicon and good at making modules and good at, you know, selling solar um, all have different boards and different management teams that have yep. different expertise and different sentiments and different reasons, right? And, different, yeah. and so I think they should stay separate. And I think what you've seen is when people come together, they generally fail. Um, it's been it's been very difficult for companies, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, Terry Jester, this was a fun conversation. Good to hear about the origins of the solar industry and the future of solar manufacturing. Uh, Terry is the CEO of Silicor Materials. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It was absolutely my pleasure to be part of it, and I hope I, I get to actually see you all at some point. Thank you very much. So the last time Congress passed a comprehensive energy bill in 2007, the world was in a very different place. We were talking about oil shortages. We were optimistic about biofuels, and biomass and hydro were the dominant renewable electricity technologies. 
Today we're awash in oil and gas. Battery storage is a viable alternative to peaker plants and to, to other power plants. Electric grids are undergoing a sudden and potentially violent shift. So it's time for a comprehensive energy bill that addresses today's needs. And the Senate actually passed one this week with overwhelming bipartisan support. It now must reconcile that bill with one passed in the House, which could take a couple of weeks. But this is a big development, a bipartisan bill in an election year designed to modernize our energy infrastructure. Not everyone's happy, but that's what you get in a bipartisan bill, and there's a lot of good stuff in here. Catherine, what made its way into Murkowski's bill? This is uh, the result of a long negotiation. We talked a bit about that when it first got underway, and there's a little bit of everything in this bill, it seems. Yeah, I talked to some of the folks um, in the Senate today, and I said, you know, I really thought this was a car on the side of the road with a handkerchief out the window. Um, But somehow, you know, by just by sheer willpower, uh, Chairwoman Murkowski really got it, got it going again, jump started the car, and they got it over the finish line um, with huge support, 85 to 12 bipartisan support. And they really did recognize that the world has changed. And in addition to the things that you mentioned, you know, wind power capacity is quadrupled. Solar PV is tenfold increased. So, so it, the grid is has been needing some real national um, energy policy attention. So, infrastructure modernization. You know, trying to make sure that we take into account. Um, resilience, reliability, as we look at um, what our grid of the future needs to look at. And one of the things that the folks were telling me on the Hill was, look, you know, the energy bill is not meant to be necessarily for right this second. It's really to look at for the next 10 to 15 years, what does our national energy policy need to look like? So the things that they were really highlighting in this bill were grid scale storage. So there's a $500 million 10-year R&D program that's really going to address the sort of gnarly um, balance of system issues, um, cost of materials and production. So it's it's less about the kind of startup, the um, early stage R&D, and more about how do we continue to bring the cost down, advance grid technologies like microgrid deployment. It's a 10-year, $2 billion program. They've looked at cybersecurity. They've looked at the DOE loan program to codify that it's a that you can um, clean energy funds, state funds can participate in the loan program. Um, renewable energy isn't directly addressed, you know, for solar and wind necessarily, but there is some uh, transmission um, streamlining that is included. There are other te- other renewable technologies like marine, hydrokinetic, and geothermal that are all part of this. Energy efficiency is a huge piece of the bill innovation, workforce, advanced manufacturing, um, energy and water nexus. So they've really, it's huge. They've taken into consideration, you know, as much as they could in a way that they could all come to agreement on. And while they say it's nobody's ideal of what they wanted, it really is a big step forward. And since it was able to get bipartisan support, that makes it even stronger. Yeah, some good stuff in here for heating and cooling, solar heating and cooling. Those technologies are now qualify as part of the renewable portfolio standard for the federal government. There's also some language in here um, directing the Department of Energy to, to start evaluating the true value of solar on the grid, which could influence some of those regulatory considerations that we're seeing around around the country. And then there's, uh, as you said, like more promotion of rural microgrids, which is, of course, something that Murkowski likes to talk about because 
you know, representing Alaska. There are a lot of communities that are held hostage to high fuel costs. There really is just so much in here. The Enviros, though, don't quite like it because it does have oil and gas provisions. It, it is pretty incremental, but it's what they could get past in an election year. And it got bipartisan support. The, 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 so the, understandably, there are some things for other sectors other than clean energy, like oil and gas sector, which is not doing very well. But some of the things that also were not able to get in that some of us were pushing hard on were amendments to the Federal Power Act or PURPA that would really try to get states to look very much more intentionally at state policy and federal policy. The issue is that when you start opening up big pieces of legislation like that, you can get things that are not good put into them. So some of those were were brought off the table. And I think what the Senate was able to do, both um, Chairman Murkowski and Ranking Member Cantwell, was really to try to come together on things that they could have an input on. And, you know, it meant that they were going to really need to address all types of technologies. So it's not the perfect, but it also um, really does try to set the stage for how our nationals energy policy should look moving forward. Can I throw some ice cold water on this conversation? Um, <laughs> sure, Jigger. Or that's some boiling job. hot water. Which, that's your job. I mean, as I understand it, this bill has zero chance of passing in its current form, the House, right? The House bill basically, you know, does everything it can to cut off building codes at the knees. I mean, one of the amendments in the House bill is actually to eliminate all Energy Star efficiency standards for appliances. And so these two bills can't be more different. And so what is what are the chances that they actually reconcile the differences in these bills and get it to the president? Okay, let me just paint a little picture for you here. So you're right. The House bill is very different. It was not passed with bipartisan support at all. It was passed with only Republican support. However, so you have a you have a House bill that has all R's, no D's. You have a Senate bill with R's and D's. The conference committee comes together, and the conference committee has Senate Democrats and Republicans and House Democrats and Republicans. Three out of those four groups are going to agree on what needs to be in the bill. The Senate Democrats and Republicans and the House Democrats. The, the House Republicans, in order to come out with a bill that's a compromise bill, they're the ones that are going to have to move. Um, Chairman Upton of the House Energy and Commerce Committee is very motivated to get something done, too. He wants to get national energy policy done. His bill right now is veto bait. Like the president would veto the House bill. But if the House and Senate can really, they're going to have to move to what the Senate's done, I believe, just to get all the votes. If they can do that and they can make it look more like the Senate bill that has full bipartisan support, then the president can sign it. Now, they also have a time restriction, which is they want to get this done before August recess. August recess starts July 15th because of all, because, um, well, oh, the presidential sh- election, right? Yeah. Because of the election. Um, right. And so there is a time limit to this and, uh, you know, there, but I think three out of four, you might actually be able to get something that looks much more like the Senate bill. How does House Speaker Paul Ryan's conciliatory and aspirational tone play into this? Do you, do you think that he'll play any role in getting the, the conference committee to agree, to agree on a bill that is suitable? Yeah, so here's the thing. The bill is not so controversial that it's something people can take home and wave around either way. So I don't think, you know, if he is conciliatory and allows something that the Democrats can agree to, to 
pass his ha- his chamber, I don't think that's a bad thing for either party because it's not something anybody's going to get beat up over. They do get beat up over other things, but not necessarily this um, because it's pretty wonky policy stuff. So I actually think it is one of those things that can get done. It'll show bipartisan support. Now, let's just hope that, you know, campaign year politics don't get in the way of that getting done. Well, the bill is a pretty big deal. Like I said in the intro, we haven't had a piece of comprehensive energy legislation since 2007. I think this just scratches the surface of what needs to be done. But the fact that we had so much support for this in the Senate is a good sign. We'll see what happens in the conference committee, and we'll update you in a week or two whenever we get some results on that. Let's tackle our final piece of business, Roan Resch. Roan Resch has been the president of the Solar Industries National Trade Group, SIA, for a dozen years. So speaking of our earlier conversation with Terry, we were reminiscing about the earlier days of the solar industry. Twelve years ago, solar PV was in the middle of a rapid transition away from the crunchy pioneers, uh, the early engineers, and the experimental business arms of energy companies to Wall Street banks and MBAs. The solar industry has witnessed enormous growth, change, and turmoil, and Roan's been flying the flag for solar uh, in Washington, a technology that's really only now getting taken seriously in the halls of Congress. Um, Last week, Resch announced that he's stepping down as the leader of SIA. This is a chance for us to talk about his legacy now and about what's next for the solar industry's national lobbying efforts. Jigger, there are a lot of important people who have given solar a strong political voice around the country. Uh, Where does Roan's stack up? Well, you know, I think 12 years ago was before the 2005 Energy Policy Act, right? So I think that for most people who've joined the solar industry, I don't know that they actually remember a time that solar didn't have the 30% tax credit. But when Roan got his job, um, you know, I think SIA had a budget of $400,000 and there was a 10% tax credit, you know? And, um, and, and so I just think that about how far we've come and, you know, the, the thing that Roan did more than anything in the world, and, and Catherine, you probably know this firsthand from, from all of your experience in this area, is he heard cats like the best of them. Um, I mean, people on the SIA board hated each other. The amount of backbiting and fighting and all the other stuff, the utility scale solar people are saying, why do the DG people even exist? And the DG people are saying, why do, are we sharing a platform with, these, you know, utility scale folks. And I mean, it's just to keep that coalition together and to show unity in front of Congress and all these other places, that is just not an easy job. And Roan did it with grace and style and professionalism in spades. Yeah, running a trade association is completely thankless. I've run several of them and I'm continuing to run one at the moment. And you really is herding cats and you have to build consensus among people who have really different business goals. You have to advocate for issues that they can all come together on. And that is what I think has been really successful for them is that they've been able to pick out a few things that they can all agree on. This is what we need to get done. And then everybody's rowing in the same direction. So I talked to Roan couple of hours before this conversation, and I'm going to print a Q&A with him at Green Tech Media. And one of the things I asked him uh, was, what do you think your big successes were? He went through a lot of the obvious ones, like the 30% investment tax credit, um, provisions in the stimulus bill, etc. But really, when it came down to it, it was his description of 
Sia always knowing what the ask should be, right? So like when, when they could anticipate something coming up, they always knew what their priorities should be and what the specific ask was, which um, for a lot of very successful trade associations is normal. But for a lot of other trade associations, I think they're, they're trying to play catch up. They're responding to things. And he said that that was what he really tried to drill into SIA, to always have that list of priorities. They could go to the White House. They could go to members of Congress and talk about with authority. Would you say that's um, that's accurate? Oh, yeah. No, look, I mean, Roan's political instincts were without question, you know, the best that we've had in the solar industry. And, I, you know, I think that when you think about all the people he's mentored, um, you know, John Stanton, who's now at uh, – uh, Solar City, Scott Hennessy, like all these extraordinary regulatory affairs and political folks who have gone into the industry now and are now spreading that wisdom, you know, at the state level and all the other fights that they're having. Um, you know, it's it, the legacy of Roan Rush, you know, is is one of bringing an industry that, you know, really was a backwater industry. In 2004, I mean, the U.S. solar industry wasn't even on the map, you know, I mean, California was sort of a small program, you know, Germany and Japan were, were kicking in all cylinders, right? But the U.S. wasn't anywhere. One of the things that he reminded me was in 2004, as they were working on the, the tax credit issues and to try to get a 30% tax credit, they got Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, who has uh, been, you know, really critical of wind to support the ITC. That was a pretty big early win to get Republican support for solar. Yeah, so and I would say that is where um, the solar and wind industries used to, back in the day when Randy Swisher was running OEA and Scott Sklar was running SIA, all of the renewables folks had to really work together because nobody was big enough to fight anybody on their own. Um, they had nothing to start with, and so everybody was kind of joining forces. But with the tax credits coming in at different timelines and the industries growing and growing differently and separately, it really did make them very different. And so the wind folks and solar folks have very different organizations and very, very different priorities. And um, and so in one way, it's kind of fractured the renewables folks. But in another way, it means that solar is on its own very strong and wind is on its own very strong, too. So, you know, one of the things that is going to be interesting, Roan's last day, I think, is the end of May. Um, and, um, you know, they haven't named an interim uh, director. I'm not sure they're going to. I think they might leave it empty for a little while uh, while they do a search. Um, there's a lot of ways this could go. Um, it is entirely possible that SIA breaks up into two different organizations um, with the large-scale guys basically joining SEPA or EEI. Um, as wow, a you really think so? Group. Oh, it's likely. I think it's Yeah, but likely. SEPA doesn't advocate, so you need right, an that's advocacy why, arm. That's why I think it'll join EEI um, as a separate sort of group within Edison Electric Institute. Is that just a um, hunch or are you hearing that from people on the board? Is that something that's grounded oh, in no, what people I'm, are talking about? I'm getting lots of calls from people on the board as to who, you know, would be the new, um, you know, director, et cetera. I think you're, I think you're seeing a real large coup within the solar industry around, you know, basically changing SIA radically, right? Maybe moving it outside of DC. Um, um, wow. And really focusing it on the state level issues because SIA has been handicapped by the large solar players. I mean, if you look at SIA's role in the states for the last four years, it's been atrocious. Um, 
and you know, I, I, my sense is, is that there's a lot of folks, um, you know, vying to figure out a way to fix that. I, I got some comments from folks in the solar industry who said that they do think SIA should put more focus on the states, and SIA has been a partner of many of the many of the organizations focused on state and local issues. But Roan said that he thinks SIA should continue its broad federal focus because there are a lot of folks who could come in and undo things, um, undo tax credits, really push against the clean power plan. And so if he had it his way, he would put more resources into the states, but still maintain a pretty robust federal focus. So those are his thoughts, at least. No, but I think that's why he's no longer the executive director. Well... People I've talked to really seem to like him. I think they echoed both of your descriptions of his career. And I did ask him what's next. And he said he's going to stay in the solar industry. He just wants to go into the private sector. No specifics yet, but we haven't seen the last of Roan in solar. So he's not going too far. He's just going to go into the private sector, I think. I should hope not. We we owe Roan a, a, an extraordinary debt of gratitude. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine? What's your story this week? Yeah, so you guys may have heard uh, a while back in the fall, a group of Republicans got together to do a conservative environmental stewardship resolution in the House. And there are about 11 or 12 Republicans that really care about climate change and wanted to do something before the Pope visited. Well, now they have a bipartisan group. They call they called it the Noah's Ark Caucus. It's actually not officially called. It's called the Climate Solutions Caucus. But there are 10 people, Democrats and Republicans, five of each, who have got together to say, let's talk about climate in a way that makes sense and that comes up with solutions Um, These are people who are trying to put politics aside and say, look, we have big problems and we need to deal with them and we need to think about them in a much more serious and um, market based way. So I thought that was uh, significant. That was that was reported on this week. And, uh, you know, I think we'll start to see that creep back in so that we can actually talk about climate change in a less partisan fashion. We can only hope. Yes. Jigger, what's your story? Well, I don't know that my story is something that people don't know, but, um, you know, today Sun Edison filed for bankruptcy. Um, It's pretty crushing for me and a lot of other folks um, Mm. to see Sun Edison in in the current state that it's in. Um, It's in restructuring, um, you know, so it may not, you know, get broken up into pieces, but... um, but it's a it's it's a terrible shame. Yeah, indeed. What what do you think the next steps will be in restructuring? Is it still just too early to say? Well, I mean, it's it's up to Ahmad, right? I think if Ahmad resigns tomorrow, then I think the company could get saved. And if Ahmad doesn't resign, then the company will, you know, basically be assetless within I think a, f- a few months. Um, you know, I mean, because once you go into bankruptcy, um, most of their contracts and their pipeline. The customers can, you know, vacate the contracts if Sunnison goes into bankruptcy. Um, you know, it's this really weird thing. I mean, Ahmad has not really cashed out his stock or anything else, but he's got this ego that's so large that he doesn't realize that he's what's destroying the company. Um, yeah, this process terrible. has been very painful. And when we have more details on the restructuring, we'll revisit this in a few weeks I think once we have a handle on where things are headed for Sun Edison, we'll try to give you a clear picture. Yeah, and there's so many smart, talented people who work there. Yeah, many of whom have now left the company. I heard over the weekend uh, from someone very high up that, that a number of 
team managers and, and high level folks left over the weekend. So yeah, they continue to bleed people. Um, two things. One is I just got an alert while we were recording that Prince has died. So that's a really sad piece of news. Um, I also wanted to mention, we haven't talked a lot about politics on this podcast. Catherine definitely fills us in with her knowledge on what's happening in Congress, but we haven't really covered the election. And Shale Khan and I had a great conversation yesterday on the interchange about where the candidates stand. Um, I highly recommend people check that out. That is not a free podcast. It's our premium podcast. I got to do a shameless plug here, but I enjoyed the conversation. I think it's a nice uh, summation, characterization of where all the candidates are. And now after New York, looks like Trump is a little bit closer to the nomination and Hillary is a lot closer to the nomination. So once those candidates are actually chosen, if they are chosen, then we will revisit that issue on the Energy Gang. All of our episodes of The Interchange can be found at greentechmedia.com slash squared if you are interested in checking out that conversation. You know, the um, Hillary had a monstrously large fundraiser at uh, Lyndon Reeves' house a few weeks ago. Um, you know, completely sold out to the gills. She raised a bunch of money. And um, I was talking to Andrew Beebe that was there, and he said that he was just amazingly impressed by what um, Hillary had to say and how knowledgeable she really was about, you know, our issues, which which gave me a lot of hope that uh, Hillary's made her pivot from fracking to clean energy. Yeah, Shale has been working with the campaign on a volunteer basis, doing a little bit of consulting, not playing a major role, but just doing a little bit of consulting. And he has had a lot of good things to say about the energy team there, that they really have a good handle on the broad range of issues. And they really understand solar, too, which is the issue he's working on, of course. And then her plan to deploy half a billion solar panels in her first term, while very ambitious, is still grounded in in the reality. So, so Catherine, can I ask you, like, that has got to be the worst tagline in the history of solar. Do you actually know what a half a billion solar panels is? <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, like, I don't understand what the hell is wrong with her team. It's like, is it 20% solar in this country? Is it, you know, from 1 million solar homes, which we hit this month to 10 million solar homes? Like, what, what is the metric? What is a half a billion solar panels? Is it bigger than a bread box? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, like, I actually had to whip no. out a spreadsheet to calculate how many gigawatts it was because yeah. I didn't know. I, I mean, I don't actually know the, the number. <laughs> it, was abs- it, like, literally got to be the But it's great for people outside the solar industry because nobody really cares. I mean, nobody knows what the hell 10 gigawatts is or 60 gigawatts is. So a half a billion solar panels sounds just as good, if not better. Well, we could talk about this at a later date, but I think communicating in a way that no one understands you is not a good thing. Well, if people outside the energy industry listen to this podcast, they probably think the same way about us too. (laughs) Okay, that's the show. Make sure to follow the link in our show notes to get tickets to our live show on May 4th. If you can't make it, you can always overload yourself with back episodes, which you can get at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, or any other podcast aggregator or app. Email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We love to hear from you. And be sure to follow all three of us on Twitter to keep the conversation going. We've all uh, got our accounts there. We've got the Energy Gang account, so be sure to follow us. Thanks for listening. Catherine, until next time, have a good week. I will see you in New York. Yeah, see you live. Jigger, see you in your hometown, on your home turf. Bring it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. 
and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com.